Alright, so this morning, as you might have guessed, we are back in our Ologies series. The Ologies, learning about all of the different doctrines that make up our Christian faith. Essentially, what we're doing, if you didn't know, and as if I'll just remind you, because it's been a while since I've taught this. Um, I taught the intro, and then Jason, and then Matt, and so now you're stuck with me for a couple more weeks. Um, this is basically systematic theology. Um, as we uh, talked about a long time ago, uh, basically what systematic does is look at the Bible and says, here's the things that are coming out of scriptures, and here's how we can know that these are true. And so it's based... Systematic theology is based on biblical theology, uh, which is to say everything that we know is based on on the Word. This is not just made-up stuff. This is coming directly from Scripture, That's and it's just kind of categorizing it, systematizing it, organizing it in a way that we can say, here's what we believe about Christ. Here's what we believe about the Bible, or when I'm done, uh, here's what we believe about the Holy Spirit, and so on and so forth. Um, so that's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to learn, yep, yeah, I should have done that already. We're learning about Christology, uh, the doctrine of Christ. Um, I'm going to start here just because I think it would be really good to start uh, where I love to start. <laughs> You've seen me reference this before. I'm going to reference it again, uh, and I can't wait till they release their newest one in 2024, uh, sometime this year, I imagine. But uh, you see me reference uh, the state of the theology survey. Uh, I love referencing this only because I think it's such an accurate and revealing portrayal of what the general populace, so to speak, believes or say they believe about certain biblical truths. Um, and it's not like a, a total amazing representation, but I think it's a good snapshot. It gives you a good bird's eye view. Here's the state of what either the church believes or even what the non-church, what their familiarity with what we would say we believe out of Scripture. So, um, again, I've referenced the, the 2022 one, which is the latest one. This survey is put on by uh, Lifeway and Ligonier Ministries, and they do a lot of research, and they, they basically uh, survey adults, like roughly 18 into the, uh, the 50s, I think. Um, I can't remember what the age range is. But anyways, they have a wide smattering of, of, of ages and demographics, so it's like people that we would align with and then people that are unchurched. Um, uh, but so the one I, I always go to, this is statement number seven uh, within this survey. There's a ton of survey questions or statements, and you have to either say, I agree, I strongly agree, I am kind of neutral, or I disagree, blah, blah, blah. Uh, this is the one I usually go to. There's another one about the Bible that I go to as well, but this is the, for our purposes. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. <coughs> uh, that's, that's what the statement says, and um, I think this, of course, uh, as, and as we're going to explain, this directly, of course, contradicts um, what the Bible says about the deity of Christ, and we're going to explain that later. But um, sort of in the main, 53% of U.S. adults agreed to this. Um, so just across the board, half of U.S. adults said, yeah, that's true. Jesus is not God, but he was a good teacher. But I think even more revealing is that 44% of evangelicals agreed with this statement, which I'm not even sure how it's possible to be an evangelical Christian and say that Jesus wasn't God. That's kind of like, you know, Christianity 101. Like, we learned that when I was like five years old, when I was in Sunday school. So, um, I, I'm not sure where that comes from. I'm not sure, well, I guess I, I do know where it comes from. It comes from bad biblical theology. <laughs> Just to go back to that, it comes from, if your basis is wrong, if your foundation is wrong, everything else is going to crumble. This is just a side effect of that. A side effect 
of bad biblical theology is to say that, oh yeah, Jesus was a really great teacher. He had a lot of great morals that he portrayed, that he represented. He was great at miracles. He was great at healing people. He was a great humanitarian. He was a great philosopher. He was a great speaker. But it doesn't get to the, to the, the heart of what Jesus has come to reveal, which is he is God in the flesh. So anyways, I think this, of course, is really concerning. It should be concerning. It should be just alarm bells going off all like crazy. The fact that 44%, almost half of evangelicals would say, yeah, Jesus is just a, he is a really good teacher. Um, and it's kind of just concerning that, that we don't really know who, who Jesus is, who Jesus was. Um, that's what the Bible is all about. Not to like, you know, the Sunday school answer, you know, what's the Bible about? It's about Jesus. But it, it is about Jesus. Um, that's what it's there for. It's there for us to grow into closer and closer, deeper and deeper, stronger and stronger relationship with, with Jesus, with who he is. Uh, he is God come in the flesh. And I would say, uh, if, if people don't know who Jesus is, then I would hasten to say also they don't know what salvation is. They don't know uh, what he accomplished and why he accomplished it and what it means uh, for the fact that that Jesus is the Son of God come in the flesh to, to save us from sin. Um, and I would say this isn't like the only reason, um, but I think it is a, a really huge reason of why there's so much just confusion and, and, and division within the modern church. Um, you, you don't have to go very far or look very hard to find a lot of bad stuff in the church. And there's always been scandals in the church. That's nothing new. There's always been preachers falling. If you go all the way back to Paul's day, that's that's nothing new. And there's always been schisms. And, and where those schisms come from? It's because they divide on what they think the Bible's supposed to do. I'm not going to preach biblical theology again, but I, I could. Um, but I think what this does, this, this snapshot, what this does, I think it gives us a great platform from which to uh, understand or, again, dive again into the doctrine of Christ, Christology, because we, we need to know who Christ is. Uh, as Christians, we should know who our namesake was and is. We should know precisely what it means for the fact that when we say we are a Christian, we should know what that entails. And that's, has, that has had a lot of different meanings, perhaps, over the, over the decades. But when we say that we follow Christ, if you go all the way back to the first century, do you remember what the first Christians were called before they were called Christians? Remember? The way. People of the way. Yeah, people of the way. Yeah. Um, and it's the way of Christ. It's the way of following God in the flesh. And they were making all kinds of assertions. Um, if you, and, you know, there's... If you, go, if you go to Acts, I think that's why, why were all the apostles thrown into jail? Because they were claiming that Christ, the Jesus of Nazareth man, who was crucified on a cross, and everyone was very aware of that event, that this teacher from Galilee, you know, had made a name for himself, so to speak. He had gotten a lot of following, and then suddenly he was tried and crucified as a Roman traitor, as a blasphemer. And now they're saying, he's God? Yeah, no wonder they were they were they were criminalized and they were thrown into jails because of what they were claiming that it wasn't just he wasn't just a good teacher he wasn't just a prophet they were saying that Jesus is God in the flesh that's the basis of 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 everything that you see in the Book of Acts that's if you go to all the sermons 
They talk about the resurrection and they talk about Jesus' identity as the Christ, as the Son of God, the one who is like God, but come down for us. Anyways, so I think in order for us to answer the confusion regarding about Christ, that, you know, Jesus was just a good teacher, but he wasn't God. In order to answer that, I think it would, we should be intimately familiar with who Jesus is and who Jesus was when he was, what he was on the earth. So some resources from Christology, just really broad brush, so to speak, is just go read John. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's, I don't want to like cop out and be like, read John and I'm done, but you could, um, I really, you could really do that. Just read the gospel of John. His whole premise is, is what? <laughs> Showing that Jesus is God. That's his whole premise for writing the gospel. And he says that quite plainly in chapter number 20, uh, but also his letters, um, John's letters are basically like extensions of that theme. So if you have, like, if you were to put together a book and you have a, a appendix at the back, all of his letters would be like appendices, sort of again proving the same point. First John is is very much like the Gospel of John, which it has the same premise: Jesus is God, and that's why we are who we are. We are Christians because we've been bought by the blood of Jesus, who is God. And basically he was writing to dismantle some of those really early skeptics, John was. John was writing in an age when Jesus' identity, right in that first century, was already being called into question, already having doubt thrown its way. Um, If you remember from our study, does anyone remember, I'm going to test your, you get a gold star. Um, who who was the antagonist of John when he was writing the the, the, the his first letter? Marcion. Mar- oh, close, yeah, Marcion. He was he was he was in that era, but the, there was another one that was sort of a proto Marcion, even before him. That was a good guess, though. There, I can't remember the name. It's a weird name. It is. It is weird. Serenthus. Uh, Serenthus is this Gnostic teacher, and he's he, he's sort of often sometimes called the father of Gnosticism. With Gnosticism is just that idea that, you know, I have superior knowledge. It's not just about faith, but you have to have this experiential knowledge, uh, and that's what equates salvation. And so basically what he was saying was, what, is, what was Serenthus saying? He was this adversary of the church, and he was basically trying to establish the fact that Jesus and Christ are sort of two distinct persons or beings. So Jesus is the biological son of Mary and Joseph who received Christ at his baptism. And so now you're, you're sort of driving a wedge between Jesus and Christ. And then he would also, and he went on to assert that when Jesus died on the cross, that spirit left him. So, I mean... There's a lot of things wrong with that, obviously, but like, it just from a broad brush stroke, you can say that what's happening is he's making the person dying on the cross nothing more than a mere man, which is really detrimental to your faith. It's re- we have no faith if it's just a man dying on the cross. Um, so, of course, all of this is changing what the church stood for and what the church stands on. And why? And so you can see exactly when, as that teaching is getting some some buzz, it's influencing the churches, and now they're a generation removed from when Jesus was around, and people are saying, "Did 
Did he really say that? That's why John writes in 1 John chapter 1, hey, we were there. We felt him. We touched him. We saw him. We listened to him. We were with him. Why is he writing and why is he trying to invoke such passion in the people that he's writing to? It's because, I mean, maybe I'm reading into this, but he's frustrated over the fact that we're already veering off. And he's like, I was there. <laughs> I was with him. I put my head on his shoulder. I, that's who I was with for those three years. Um, anyways, just a verse here. I'll read it for you. I, I referenced it, but I guess I should, I should read it. John 20 um, is that verse that he writes at the, at the end of his gospel, which basically summarizes his thesis, his premise for writing the gospel. Uh, John 20, verse 30 Notice what he says. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's what, this is his reason for writing. John, as, if you know anything about the Gospels, John is not part of the synoptics. The synoptics are Mark. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because they are all very similar in structure and format, and they include very many of the same stories. John is different. He includes the most miracles. Why? He's proving Jesus' deity. He's not just a man. He's not just a good teacher. He's God. This is why he can do these things. This is why he can say, peace be still, and the whole Sea of Galilee listens. It obeys his commands, because he was there from the beginning, which we're going to get to in a minute. So you can, all that say, read John. If you, so whenever you, you see, I, I see these like, you know, the reels and the TikToks and the people like Jesus never said he was God. No, you, you won't find a verse where it says, where like Jesus comes out verbatim and says, I am God. Um, but you also don't have to have that because of what John and especially the gospel of John and what uh, the first John um, demonstrate. So whenever you say that, say, I want you to read John first and then come back and talk to me. So anyways, read the Gospels of John or the Gospel of John, his writings. So the writings of, of John, but also another good resource for Christology is, yeah, those early creeds and confessions of the church that were mostly in some of the first few centuries um, after Jesus ascended. And why? It's because, again, even in those early days, Jesus' identity was being called into question. Yes, by Marcion. Yes, by Arius. Um, many, many of the heretics that are like labeled heretics within church history are heretics because they've said something wacko about Jesus. Um, and we're going to get into that because I, the, the best example that I could take you to is the Creed of Nicaea or at the Council of Nicaea in 325. They had another one in 381, but the original one in 325, um, this creed that came out of this council it, it is crafted precisely because they were trying to refute the teachings of Arius, who is known for Arianism, who taught, again, that Jesus Christ was a being who was made by God. So he was saying that, God is God, and Jesus is, you know, is reducing Jesus to essentially, like, basically a higher class angel. Uh, he's a being who was created by God, 
And so the Council of Nicaea is, is organized and formulated in roughly the year 325, and that's where Arius is condemned as a heretic, and they compose this confession. Now listen to these words and let me know if there's anything unorthodox, because it is right on the money. Notice what they say. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence of the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. On the third day he rose again, according to the Scriptures, He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. I mean, this covers the full gambit of what the church believes about Jesus. This is, in a nutshell, these are like all of the big bullet points about who Jesus is. And they're affirming it both publicly and, you could say, very firmly. That they're going against any of those other notions, any other notion that Jesus is just a good teacher, Jesus is just a good philosopher, no, we're wiping all of that out. He is, as it says, God from God. He is true God. He is truly God come down in the flesh. And rumor has it, by the way, maybe for this rumor, that at this, at this council, good old St. Nicholas punched Arius in the face. <laughs> Who knows if that's true? It might be, you know, like George Washington's apple tree. But I like to believe that it's true. Um, you know, jolly old St. Nick, he wasn't really jolly. He got mad at Arius, and he punched him in the face for his hair. So anyways, I don't know if his history will prove that, but it's a fun story nonetheless. <laughs> and I kind of want it to be true, even if it's not. Um, so anyways, if you want to read, and I think what this does to this creed, the, ni- the, creed of ni- uh, the Nicene Creed, if you will, you could also read the Creed of Chalcedon. That was in like 450. Um, so just like a century later, they had to reaffirm again. Anyway, the Creed of Chalcedon does something similar. But anyways, I think what this does too is just, this will give us kind of a good outline on how we're going to break down um, sort of diving into the doctrine of Christ, Christology itself. Because when you say, who who is Jesus and who is Jesus, that's kind of a daunting daunting sort of topic to sort of dive into. So we're going to start out by looking at his pre-existence and his deity. So the idea that um, he didn't come into being Jesus always was. Uh, we're going to look at that and how it sort of uh, plays into his deity. We're also going to then look at his humanity and his incarnation, his virgin birth. This all goes together because he's not just God. He's God and man. And he's not just man. He's man and God. He's the, he's the God man. And it's important that we, te- we keep those two natures um, very, and, and again, this won't make sense because our, our minds are finite. Because um, we would be like, what percentage of God is he? Is he 51, 49? No, he's 100 and 100. It's not like, you can't divide Jesus' persons, Jesus' natures, if you will. Uh, I shouldn't say persons. You shouldn't divide Jesus' natures. Um, it's 100% God and 100% man. So anyway, we're going we're to go into all that. And then we're going to go into his miracles and his messianic claims because... That's the point of his miracles. When Jesus, Jesus is going around healing people, he, he's being a good humanitarian. Yes, he's being very nice. <laughs> he's healing people just at a touch of his hand, or sometimes not even a touch of his hand. He's healing people. But what was the reason for those? It was to corroborate the fact that he's the Messiah. 
That's, that's the reason why they're happening. Um, and then we're going to look at his ministry of death and resurrection. And then also we're going to close by looking at his ascension and second coming. Because all of this really basically forms um, what the church is standing on. Because all of this information is kind of driving what the church agrees with, stands on, and says, this is what we believe. This is, this is what we are standing on as truth and what the church has stood on as truth for centuries, for um, for thousands of years, and we can still stand on that um, because Jesus is um, um, the one through whom we have everything that that we have. So uh, this kind of gives us this is the roadmap. We're going to start out here, pre-existence and deity, and then go on from there. Um, and I think this will really help us to understand why we call ourselves Christians. So um, I, I was going to touch a little bit on pre-existence, but before I do that, and I, I will for just a few minutes, but anyone have any questions or, or thoughts or comments just by way of introduction to all of this? Anyone have anything that just, that all start up? How is communication, I mean, you're doing it verbally, but uh, back in uh, 325 AD, <laughs> so did they have some kind of scripture presentation written or was it just they had yeah sure they had uh, some of the uh, of Paul's writings and then and, and, but did they have a general course or was it only for the, the hierarchies <laughs> that's a good question so uh, by that time um, they would have had the full canon scripture um, you know what its format was I don't remember when the first codex was so the first codex would have been like what we would know as a Bible bound like this. I don't think they were still reading on scrolls. <laughs> um, but I don't know when the first codex kind of came into existence. Um, but yeah, it was slower moving in terms of communication because, again, they don't have email. They can't just call up, you know, I can't call up, you know, Athanasius and be like, hey, what did you hear what Arius just said? I can't do that. It, it's slower. And that's why those creeds and those councils, they, they developed slower over a longer period of time. But I think also this goes back, I think it's a good question, because the, the reason why we have written scriptures, um, it goes back to Paul. Um, you can kind of get the sense, and this is a little bit of like reading between the lines, um, but if you read First and Second Timothy, there's this great sense that Paul is, is trying to say, I need to write these things down. And in fact, I think Peter says that. That like, I think Peter says somewhere in like 1 Peter 3 or chapter 2, he says he inferred, there's this inference basically that these things need to be, they need to be written down. We need to write these things down. And why? Because up to that point, they had the Old Testament and they had a lot of verbal communication. They had a lot of sermons. They had a lot of, the apostles were preaching. They were preaching very strongly. But all of that is verbal. All of that is oral tradition, if you will. That's oral communication. So why is Paul saying that we need to write things down? Because people were already writing things down and passing it off as truth. So when all these false gospels were being circulated, Paul's saying, we need to write stuff down in order basically to counter all of that. And that's why we have the writings that we have. That's why we have this in front of us, is because it all kind of stirred from that. And it's not to say that everything comes back from false notions about who Christ is, but that was a really good catalyst for the early church to be like, these things need to be publicized. They need to be sort of put in a format that we can tangibly hold 
because a verbal story is more easily broken down than a written story. You know, I can pa- you know, it's like a game of telephone. <laughs> we pass something around the room. By the time you know we start out with an elephant and we get with a jaguar, it's like, what in the world? What happened there? Well, if you have a piece of paper, it's gonna make its way around, and we have the same sort of story. That idea is generally speaking where all of this comes from, why we have these things written down. It's to say, here's what the church believes, here's what we stand on, and we can be firm in that. So, yeah, good question. Yeah, yeah and I like, obviously, your focus on Gnosticism, because that actually still exists today, not in the form it did back then. Yeah. But if you go and talk to like somebody, you'll mention these Gospels and say, well, what about the Gospel of Thomas? Uh-huh. And the Gospel of Thomas is like the number one Gnostic yeah. thing they'll use. And you just have to really get down to kind of what Brad's talking about. You have to like look at scriptures and Gospel of Thomas comes out like way later. And everything we have in scripture is like usually a degree of separation away from some kind of apostle that was there firsthand with Christ, which is why it's reliable when you start looking at the Gnostic stuff. You can already ask them to give you an early, like when theirs was, and it's always after what was written here in the Bible, but yeah. the Gospel of Thomas, when you hear that, because it sounds, because it's, you know, an apostle of Christ, so they'll use that as like, well, Thomas said this, it's like, that's not Thomas, Thomas did not yeah. say that at all. <laughs> no. So, there, yeah. But there's, I still have friends that tell me, like, you should read the Gospel of Thomas. It's like, no, I don't need to read that. They're just yeah. using his name as a pseudonym. Yep, yep. Um, and, and that's the reason why, too, why I don't get into a lot of, like, textual criticism when it comes to the scriptures, because you'll have people say, did Paul really write this letter? What are they trying to do? They're trying to drive a wedge between what you believe and also what the scripture is saying. So when it says, you know, oh, Paul definitely wrote this, you can be sure that this is apostolic. <laughs> it has the, the weight of an apostle behind it. It, it. When you read the letters of Paul, he will sometimes, you know, play that card, right? You know, I'm an apostle. You need to listen to me. He doesn't do that often, but he, he will do it. And the reason why is because that was a special office for the early church. Uh, and so when modern textual criticism is coming in saying, well, maybe uh, what all of that is, is that's just a lot of noise. It's white noise to try and get you to have just the ever so sliver of doubt on what the Bible says. You can be very certain. Um, I, I'm not, you know, I grew up thinking, you know, that. How, how am I going to say this? You, you can go back to another thing. There's this thing called the documentary hypothesis, which is basically that um, you had all of the historical books of the Old Testament, and then later on, sort of like for propaganda reasons, editors went back and like made those books sound a little bit nicer towards Israel, which is just a bunch of hogwash. Because if you read the books of like Kings and Chronicles, Israel's not painted in a good light at all. So whatever they were editing, they did a horrible job. Um, it's just to say that. Whenever authorship is being thrown into doubt, they're trying. It's an attack on on your faith. I think um, you can be very certain of who wrote the scriptures, um, especially the letters of Paul. We don't need to, you don't don't need to fret about that. Like when you're studying a book of the Bible and you have like an introduction that is like all about authorship, like if you have a commentary like that, just kind of skip over that like I don't think it plays it to me that has never added anything or taken away anything anyways I don't, I don't know how we're getting on that but that's right um any other thoughts or, or comments yeah about the ending of Mark yeah the ending of Mark yeah that's a great question do you want to try and solve this and, uh, <laughs> no I'm just kidding so Mark is a really good question because um there is number one Mike um What's his name? 
What's that YouTuber? Mike Winger. Mike Winger. Yeah. Mike Winger has a great YouTube video. It's I think it's roughly like two and a half hours long, where he talks about this quote unquote problem. So in all of the, or not all, I'm not gonna say that. There's a lot of manuscripts that end Mark Mark's gospel at verse number eight, and so that doesn't have the closing sort of great commission scene, um, where you know like it's it's very. Um, reminiscent of Matthew's gospel. It's, you know, it's really reminiscent of that. Um, and I don't think that, personally, I don't know if it necessarily matters. I'm not saying it's not important, um, because there are other manuscripts that have it in there. It depends on, you know, which one you're going to want to go to, so to speak. But Oh, oh yeah, uh, just to jump on that, actually, I was talking, or looking at that Matthew 17, 21, that's sometimes omitted. It'll go to 20, 22, and it's the same concept. What, what it was is somebody copying the manuscript had a more later version of manuscript, mm-hmm. and they went back to the original and said, that verse, you kind of expounded on that. So that's why, like, an ESV will take out verse 21. And the people will try to tell you, oh, it's missing verses. But what really happened is the person who originally put it down copied in a newer manuscript, and they went and found the older one mm-hmm. and said that that actually wasn't in there. Uh, the, it doesn't hurt anything if it has them. No, I don't think it hurts anything. Um, like, especially Mark is a good example. Like, because some people... Like, some people interpret Mark where it does have that, like, really ambiguous ending. Because if you end at verse 8, it's really, like, ambiguous as to what happened. And they say, they would interpret it as, like, that's kind of the point of what Mark was doing. Um, But others would say that, you know, they include that commission sort of ending to that story because it kind of, like, encapsulates the story. Another great example about this is John chapter 8. Because a lot of ESV or newer translations will have John 8, 1 through 11 bracketed off. Um, And... Personally, I don't really understand why, only because, you know, and I, I preached about this a long time ago, I mentioned it, but like, in John 8, that's where you have Jesus coming out to say, I am the light of the world, and then he has that great conversation with the Pharisees, where he concludes and he says, before Abraham was, I am. How can he say all this, and why does he say all this? I think it's because he has that scene earlier on, where he just totally annoys the Pharisees when they, when they come and bring the woman caught in adultery to him, and he doesn't... He doesn't discipline her. What does he do? <laughs> he actually reprimands the Pharisees for bringing her to him. And he says, let you who without the who doesn't have sin cast the first stone. And then they all have to be like, nah, shoot. And then they go away. And he's the light of the world because he's the one who he... No, I'm not going to preach this again. John 8, the reason why he can say that is because he's the only one in that whole scene who was without sin. So he could have thrown the stone. That's kind of the point of the story. Like, he's the one that could have, and he doesn't. Instead, what does he say? Um, your condemners, they're gone. <laughs> so I, you're, you're forgiven, go and sin no more. Um, and he can say that, why? Because he's the light of the world. Um, so all of those go together. All of those... Textual criticism is really difficult. It's a tricky subject, because you can get snagged. And you can get snagged whenever you see those little verses. They're like, oh man, this doesn't appear here. Well, go back to, if you can go back to original manuscripts and stuff like that, and things will, will put you down. As much as I'm like, I love the King James, and as much as I would say that it's not like an inspired version, but we do have to give credit because the King James um, copyists, so to speak, they were incredibly diligent with what they were doing. If 
It's not an accident that the church, by and large, has used the King James for hundreds of years up until kind of very, very, very recently. Within like the last couple of decades, the ESV has kind of been more of a common version. And that's, I think, basically because our language skills have just gotten worse. Um, But it's not an accident. It's because, not to say that the King James was inspired, but they really did their diligence. But even they, in the preface to the original King James, they were like, if you can improve upon this translation, do it. They were basically like, they weren't saying that they were making the end-all, be-all Bible. But... It's, it's not an accident that that we've used it for so long because it is very, very, very trustworthy. Anyways.